I'm Diane Hullett, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Barbara Carnes. Barbara Carnes is an award-winning end-of-life educator. She's an award-winning nurse. Barbara's an RN with a long history with hospice in the U.S. She's been working with hospice since the 80s, and she's the author of a book that many people are familiar with through their contacts with hospice called Gone From My Sight. Barbara has literally touched millions of lives, and today we'll be talking on the topic of caregivers. Caring for the caregiver is the topic that I proposed to Barbara. I said, I think this is really important to talk about, and it happens to be November, which is National Caregiver Month. So without further ado, I'm happy to say hello to Barbara Carnes. So hi, Barbara, and welcome. (laughs) Hi. We were just talking about... How Barbara's been caregiving for herself. She's been a little sick, so she's a little raspy. Yeah, you'll. I may wipe my nose and you may hear it in my throat, but we're going to do this. It'll be we're good. We're going to do this. So so caring for caregivers, I, I think this is such a rich topic because there's all kinds of circumstances that lead people to be caregivers, right? From the temporary, I'm caring for someone who has covid to the longer I'm caring for someone with a chronic illness, to the I'm caring for someone with a terminal illness. And and these are all different. So um, let's talk kind of candidly about caregiving. What, how would you want to open that conversation? Well, my thought is that the caregiver is kind of the invisible hero in the whole scenario in that most of the time, the attention goes to the person that's sick. You know, we're all thinking about this person that's sick. And in the background is this caregiver that's working their tush off 24 hours, seven days a week. And they're the unsung hero. And I I worry about them because I can say to you that I've lost caregivers before I've lost the patient and that happens. And so I think we need to shine light on the caregiver. That's why I'm so excited about this conversation that we're having. I think you're right. I think unsung hero is a good term. And I also think of that old story of like the frog in hot water, right? Like I think people, sometimes you step onto this path of someone getting a little bit ill and then maybe a hospitalization and you're pretty deep in caregiving before you even realize how exhausted you, the caregiver are. And I think that's another challenge of it. So, so let's kind of break these out and let's talk about like, like acute caregiving where something happens and there's immediate need for the spouse or the friends or the children to jump in and care give. What are the challenges in that kind of situation? Well, a lot of it is lack of knowledge, you know, and the fear, am I going to do something wrong? Uh, and so um, I think that starts us off with acute care and it's we're going to concentrate on getting this person we love better and so in the beginning I think there's more help for the caregiver than as this caregiving need continues 
because the longer the caregiving need, then it seems to be everyone else goes on about their normal living. The crisis uh, has been addressed in most people's mind. And then we've still got this caregiver who's doing the 24 seven and not getting the support that he or she got during the acute phase of what's going on. Right. And then, and then it may go into more of a chronic phase or a longer term phase. And, and that presents different challenges, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it's totally different challenges for the caregiver um, because now the caregiver um, it's like we can muster all of our energy to do something short-term. But when it becomes long-term, then our own caregiving energy starts to deplete. But we keep pushing ourselves because this is this is what we do. And so with long-term caregiving, I think that the caregiver gets into the pattern of not taking care of themselves. And, and we've got to get the caregiver to put their oxygen mask on first. And yet in caregiving, that seems to be the last thing that the caregiver is doing. Right. One of the great, you know, Barbara has so many materials. If listeners aren't familiar with bkbooks.com is Barbara's Karn's website where she's got all kinds of short, succinct, very accessible resources. And one of them that I've been reading recently is By Your Side, A Guide for Caring for the Dying at Home. And you talk in there about how important it is for caregivers to sleep and how important it is for them to eat well, and how those two basics sometimes just go by the wayside because if the ill person starts to sleep, the caregiver runs around and thinks, oh, I've got to do laundry, I've got to go do errands, I've got to do this and this, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to have a little me time. And suddenly that hour and a half long nap has just disappeared and the person's awake again and has needs. And so how to use that time really wisely for what truly will be rejuvenating for you. You talk about that. And then you also talk about the importance of eating well, because the caregiver can also often kind of shortchange their own needs. You know, I have ideas that when you're, and when we're caring for someone who's ill, nutrition is a huge thing. I mean, that's, that's a whole workshop in itself. But one of the things that I recommend is four to six small feedings a day, that three meals a day, uh, someone who's sick isn't going to do that. So I'm going to take that a step further and say that that's when the caregiver eats also, you know, fix instead of fixing one snack fix two snacks, one for you and one for your person and eat when they eat because the caregiver often doesn't eat, period. Or maybe eats the wrong foods. Um, right, eats kind of junk late at night and just, yeah. just gets in these kind of habits that don't support the caregiver's health. 
Right. So the whole idea is that you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. You yeah. have to make sure that when your person you're caring for sleeps, then instead of doing the laundry, you take a nap too. Um, and that all those household chores that we think are important really aren't as important as taking care of yourself so that you can continue doing the job of caring for your special person. Well, and here in a way we're talking about, we're almost, um, you know, we've sort of quickly fallen into kind of the assumption that this is maybe a spouse, you know, maybe in my mind, I'm thinking right now about like an older couple who live together and one of them needs new kind of levels of support, right? And there's also the kind of caregiving where you work one or two jobs and you have a couple of kids at home and you're trying to care for your elderly mother or father. And that's got a whole different set of challenges, doesn't it? Well, it does. And we have to learn how to ask for help. And I think there's there's a, a caregiver personality that however it happens, they end up in this role. And that caregiver personality tends to put everyone before themselves. They don't know how to ask for something for themselves. And yet that's vital, particularly, you know, if you're juggling uh, a job and a family and caring for someone, you've got to ask for help. You've got to say, hey, kids, you do the dishes tonight. This is Wednesday night, you fix dinner. You know, you've got to bring in your family and ask for help if they don't volunteer and they're used to you doing everything. So uh, if they don't volunteer, then you've got to step up and say, hey, I need help here. Right, right. And I think some of us wait until we sort of, um, you know, become a volcano and explode to kind of hit that place. So again, the frog in the hot water, how do you know that you've just jumped in a pot and begin to put some things in place, whether it's support for getting your kids driven in a different way or support for getting meals made in a different way. I, I know that resentment and challenges and um, just terrible difficulties build up really fast for people. Well, it does. And, and then along with everything else you're feeling, now you're, as a caregiver, you're feeling guilty. You know, I'm I'm not doing what I want to be doing and I feel guilty. So I think an important part of caregiving in getting the support that you need is you need to find one person that can be your listener. This listener doesn't have to have any answers at all but it has to be the kind of person that you can pick up and call on the phone and say, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what just happened. Or I am so angry, I'm so nervous, I'm whatever. This person isn't gonna have answers. You don't expect them to solve it. All you want to do is to be able to verbalize and download and let it out so that you can then return 
to the work that you're doing. And I think that's so important to have that listener. And you're, you're going to have to find one because most listeners want to solve the problem for you. Most caregivers have friends that are also caregivers and the same kind of personality. And that's not what you want. You don't want another fix-it person. You want someone to just listen to you. I love that advice. I also really appreciate it in this same book I referred to, By Your Side. You you encouraged people to create an evening ritual that kind of shook the day off. And one of your suggestions was just like, take a shower every night, rinse yourself off and let the cares and difficulties and circumstances of the day just wash down the drain. And I thought that was so interesting because I think we sometimes dismiss those kinds of uh, simple rituals. And yet I think they do have the power to kind of cleanse us and reset our hearts and minds so that we can sleep and go into the next day. It's, it's, it's powerful, those small but important things. Oh, I think, you know, ritual are amazing for our subconscious, for what we're doing. Um, I also think that before we go to sleep at night, the last thing, and this is whether it's a caregiver or I do this, I will say everyone I think should do it, but particularly if you're a caregiver is before you go to sleep at night, say, what have I traded a day of my life for? What joy has been in my life today? And think about something good that happened. And it may be that you looked out the window and saw a blue jay on the tree. Um, it may be that your special person looked up at you and said, thank you. You know, there's all kinds of little pieces of joy that we need to focus on specifically focus on because we can get so busy on our gerbil wheel of just every day that we forget that we're giving up a day of our life for. And let's make sure that that day of our life has some joy and has some good in it. I love that. I love that. I think that's such good advice, as you said, for everyone, and especially in the caregiving role. So, so here's a challenge. Like I know of a couple of friends I can think of with older parents and the parent does not want additional help. So here you've got, you know, a, a son who's working a full-time job. Mother lives about 45 minutes away and mom doesn't want anybody, but the son or daughter-in-law to help. And it's just really a challenge. I think I'm not sure how we we support those who are in need of some help in branching out what help they'll accept. And I think this is where you sit down with mom and dad and have a heart to heart and say, I know you don't wanna hear this. I know that this is just a really horrible, sad situation life has put all of us in but we've got to have this, this conversation. And that is, I'm worried about you. And 
I need some help from you in looking over you is as this daughter, I need help from you, mom. And so that I can go about my life too. And that means we're going to have to get some help in here. Yeah. So we just have to have that honest face to face. This is where we are. And it's really sad, but you know, let's work together. You help me and I'll help you. I like that. I think that's hard. And it's, it's probably not one conversation, right? It's probably, I mean, I guess I would say to the, to the people who are listening, who are caregivers of older parents, this, you, you, maybe you have this conversation before you really need some kind of extra support because you kind of want to lay it, lay it out over time. Um, but there does come a point where it's just a lot on the child who's caring for. Then, of course, you end up with all the interesting dynamics of siblings who live near mom and dad and siblings who don't live near mom and dad, right? Right. Well, and it also, um, not everyone can hire help. And, you know, the first thought is, well, we'll get some help in here. Not everyone can do that. Help is expensive. Yeah. yeah, it is expensive. And so in many, many situations, it is family that has to step forward. It is family that has to adjust to take care of their senior uh, family member. And it is family, siblings that have to inconvenience themselves to take care of mom or dad. Um, it's, it's Carol Burnett used to do this, this scenario where the mom is taking care of the baby and then the baby grows up and then it's the turn, turn for the child to take care of the mom. And that's life cycle. Yes, that's yes. the way it is. I love that. I love that. And, and our, our, I think our society, our current kind of U.S. society is not one that names that very often or says, this is the reality of life. You know, we're, we're such a, a mobile society and people live in such fractured ways and they move that we, we just don't have those ties in the way that I, I in my impression is in the way that we did a hundred years ago. Um, I know like my mom's mom, I feel like was very fortunate because she had four adult children who all lived in the same state. So the farthest one was two and a half hours away. And one was very close, you know, country mile down the road. So there was this tremendous feeling of support network. And yes, the one who lived closest did the majority, but there was a sense that all the siblings had each other's back. And I, I don't see, think that families currently necessarily feel that kind of support from each other. And so how do we, you know, how do we do that in a modern way where we are living in different places? How do, how to figure out how to have each other's back? And I also think about how to, you know, dial in other support systems. Did, did mom belong to a church? Is there some connection there? Does mom have neighbors who love her? I, I have some elderly neighbors who I adore and I always think, well, okay, as they get older and need some more consistent support, I hope that I step forward and can help them. And, 
whatever that means, drop off soup when I have extra soup or just ask after them. I think these little ways that we create webs of care make a difference too. I think they do. You know, a lot of churches have Stephen Ministries. They have support groups and people that um, are part of the congregation that then help and support others. So you're absolutely right. Look at the community for help that you can get. Um, there are a, a meals on wheels. You know, there are agencies, essentially organizations that can be tapped into. Yes. The problem is most of us don't know what they are. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm trying, I'm struggling to come up with the names and it's my business, you know? Right. And, right. Um, I feel like I've heard that. I, I think I have this right. I may not have this absolutely correct, but I feel like Michigan has put into, uh, into play instead of a nine one one, it's two one one. And if you dial two one one, and I don't know if this is nationwide, I really should know more about this. They will connect you with services. So it's kind of a social services emergency line, so to speak, but it can be used to plug into resources. I'm going to have to find out if that's true. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to check into that. Now, most people um, have a connection with physicians and with hospitals, because when you've got some chronic issues, you're, you tend to be in and out of the hospital. Hospitals have discharge planners. And and they have social workers. And so ask for, I need to talk to a social worker yes, here at yes. the hospital. I need to talk to a discharge planner. And don't come with, yeah, I can take care of this. It's how what can you do to help me take care of this situation? You know, reach out there and ask. And that discharge planners in the hospital may be um, your first option of, of seeing what the community has that can support you. That seems really powerful to me to remind people of that. And, and that reminds me of the importance of sometimes having a, an additional person along at those junctures so that the person being cared for probably isn't tracking what is being said. And the person caring for that person may or may not be taking notes on all the possibilities, but is there a third person who can come along, friend, neighbor, sibling, child, who can then kind of really ask those questions and make sure that the resources are tapped into and that we do know what numbers to call, that kind of thing. So that in the couple of weeks following the discharge, there's some follow-up. Yeah. Oh, we, so Bar Barbara and I were looking up some statistics right before we started recording. And, you know, I saw this piece from, it's from the National Alliance for Caregiving. And it said that in 2015, there were 43.5 million caregivers in the U.S. And five years later in 2020, there were 53 million caregivers. This, this is one in five adults are caring for an, another adult in some way defined as disabled in some way. And no surprise, 61% of those are women. There were also some statistics that I didn't write down about the age, but suffice to say that, you know, women sort of 45 to 65 are huge caregivers. Those are real caregiving years, but you'd be surprised how many 65 to 75 are also caregivers. And um, this is really a population we need to support. 
Well, and so often as, as a hospice nurse, um, I would go into a home and the patient was 75, maybe 80 years old, and his, his or her caretaker was also 75 or 80 years old. And that is a huge responsibility for a caregiver. Just aging is hard work. And then taking care of someone who's not only sick, but probably declining and all of the emotions that go with that. Um, and then the caregiver's own health and energy level. That's the majority of our caregivers. Yeah, that's just tremendous. And I think, again, of referring to your books, you know, you have these amazing little books, Barbara, and one of them is called Pain at the End of Life, What You Need to Know About End-of-Life Comfort and Pain Management. One of them is called How Do I Know You, Dementia at the End of Life, which, oh my gosh, whole other topic, right? Because I think the statistics on the number of people expected to be living with dementia in the next 20 years are, are enormous. And another one, you need care too, self-care for the professional caregiver. So there's there's a lot of possibilities. And one of the things I've said this before that I love about your books is when people are in this kind of hot water of caregiving, it's not like you have a whole lot of time to read, you know? So your books are really booklets in my mind. They're really short and accessible and easy to kind of take some tips. And sometimes it's only sometimes just a few tips can make a difference in how you are approaching what it is you're up to. And, and one of the things you said earlier that I want to go back to is just like, I guess I want to say it's this idea that it's a two-way street. If the person who's ill is, is in their right mind, able to discuss things, it is a two-way street between that person and their caregiver, whether that's a son or daughter or a dear friend or a partner, how to kind of have a two-way conversation. And nobody is going to get all their needs met all the time, but there has to be some give and take in these situations. Well, and part of the problem with that is when a person is ill, they become very self-centered. Their whole life, and everything around them is 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 them is their body is their aches and pains is is everything and that self-centeredness is hard on the caregiver because the caregiver really appreciates someone saying thank you thank you for bringing my dinner Thank you for helping me. And yet in that self-centeredness of being sick, we often don't reach out and think about anyone else but ourselves. And, you know, I don't think that's talked about a lot, but with the caregiver, um, at least being aware that self-centeredness is part of being sick. It isn't that they don't care about you. It isn't that the person you're giving your whole life to doesn't appreciate it. It's really, they just can't see 
beyond their own life situation. I think that's really helpful to name Barbara and just know that and then work with that. Yeah, work with it. You know, you can, depending upon where the person, how sick the person is, how interactive they are, you know, you can have a heart to heart and say, you know, I really appreciate it. If you'd say thank you when I bring you your dinner, you know, we tend to treat the person who's sick with these kid gloves and they're this misbehaved baby in the room. And, you know, we can step forward again, depending upon how sick and what their illness is about, but we can step forward and say, you know, this behavior, you got to look at it, dad, because it's really putting all of us off, try to be nicer or whatever the situation is. I think that's great. And I also think what we said earlier too, just about try to do that early on, try to do that before things get so difficult on you that you just blow a gasket and say, I can't do this another second. I'm going back to my house, <laughs> you know, back to my apartment, back to my country, back to my state. I'm leaving this situation because it's just too much. I think that's what we want to support is caregivers being able to continue to be on the front line and, and not doing it perfectly all the time. It's just not possible. Well, because really we're not trained to be caregivers. Um, we're trained to be independent and have people around us be independent. So we're stepping in as caregivers, we're stepping into a role that we haven't been trained for, you know, uh, that's, that's really important. I think that's really important. And a whole other conversation would be professional caregivers and how they care for themselves. So I, I just, yeah, I think this is such an important conversation, Barbara, and, and so relevant as more and more people are aging and more and more people are falling into these situations where they need support. Oh, absolutely. And I think we can have that awareness out there. That's why I wrote by your side was to give caregivers a tool um, on, on performing this role. It used to be that grandma lived at home. We were multi-generational and families weren't across the country from each other. They were all in the same town, often in the same house. And it was a normal progression that we took care of each other. But Today, we have to learn how to do it differently because our society is different. You know, we're not in the same town, let alone in the same house. Right. And, and we're all so independent from each other that when someone that we love gets sick, it seems to be even more disruptive to everyone than it used to be. 
that is really a good way to frame it at a kind of a big picture level, like our fierce independent as, uh, as Americans, this reliance on independence has then influenced how we see this. So it does feel like an inconvenience and a disruption. And I think people do caretake out of love and a sense of duty, but it isn't in a context that supports love and duty. Yeah. yeah. And dependence, interdependence. Yeah. Well, and then there's a whole nother issue, and that is nursing facilities, assisted living, um, and what is the family's responsibility in connection with parents that are in assisted living or nursing facilities. I mean, that we could do another whole podcast on that. That's another whole podcast. Oh, let's save it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it feels like it would be easier to have grandma living at home than living 45 minutes away in a care home. But that's a whole other subject. And I'm probably yeah. being a little pie in the sky about that. Well, thanks so much, Barbara, for this important conversation about caregiving. I think it's really, it's it's one that we talk about, but we don't often kind of dig into what would support caregivers and what are, what are, what is the big picture of why it's hard and what is the big picture of what they can do to support themselves and get support. Right, right. Um, I really appreciate this discussion today and thank you for, for inviting me. Thanks so much, Barbara. It's always great to have you on.